Christian Medical and Dental Associations hope you enjoy today's chapel message. We're going to talk about restoration today. Returning something to its former condition or function. Back in 1982, I was doing OBGYN, and um, I happened to mention I'd given up golf because children were starting to come into our lives. And um, I told, I mentioned to the clinic nurse, the head nurse in the clinic, that I was sort of thinking about a summer project that would involve at least my oldest child. And, and uh, she is just a beautiful, godly woman from Germany, immigrated from Germany. And she says, out at her farm in the field is an old rusted out 1960 VW double cab pickup truck. They never sold them here. She brought it with her from Germany. And it has three doors, two on the passenger side, one on the driver's side. But it had been out in her field right now. And these are not the actual pictures because I can't find those. So I just robbed some offline to show you what the thing looked like. But it looked every bit as rusty and dilapidated as that picture on the left. And uh, so I spent the summer totally rebuilding the drivetrain, took the engine all down, put new cylinders, pistons, and transmission parts in it, ordered them from Brazil because it's the only place you could find them. So I rebuilt that thing, and then I got my friend to do the body work, and we returned something that was in terrible condition back to its form and function. That's what restoration is about. We're going to talk about that a little bit today, but let's start with a history lesson. Back at the end of the third century, Diocletian was the emperor of Rome. And under Diocletian, Christians experienced the worst persecution in history. Maybe there are modern times that we have a good track record of knowing what persecution took place in. It was worse persecution than even under Nero. He proactively went out trying to find Christians and get them to denounce their faith and worship the Caesars as God. Many, many Christians were martyred during that time. If you read Hebrews, it talks, Hebrews was written before this time, but Hebrews talks about those who were suffered and flogged and stoned and sawn in half and killed by the sword. And then it just says these words, every time I read it, it just grips my soul. It says, the world was not worthy of them. It melts my heart to read that. But Diocletian martyred very, very many. And he also ordered that all Christian literature be burned and set about to enforce that, threatening, killing, maiming people who would hold back and hide that literature. The leaders of the church primarily, because most people didn't have access to any kind of, it was very expensive to have paper copies of anything then. So they knew who to target. And it was mostly the church leaders, the bishops and the pastors. So there were Christian leaders out there, far, far too many who capitulated, who complied with their command. And they became known as traitores, which in the Latin means those who handed over. They handed over their literature to be burned. That word coming forward into our language now we understand to be traitor, the same word. So there were people who 
at least under fear of threat of death, turned over Christian literature. Thank God he preserved much of it. In fact, we have more copies, historical copies, of that literature from that era, the biblical literature, than any other manuscript that dates back to that time. We have far, far more evidence for that because so many people made an effort to copy it and hide it. So what happened next after Diocletian, Constantine became the emperor, and he was coronated in 603, 306. (coughs) But he had to fight his way into office because there was another person who claimed to be emperor was the right of succession wasn't that clear at the time so they had a civil war which ended at the battle of Melvian Bridge on the Tiber River just outside of Rome in 312 and what happened during that battle is, is Constantine and his army were preparing for battle and very uncertain whether they were going to be the victor or not the men and Constantine saw a sign in the sky something they considered supernatural. And it was a Christian symbol sign. And the word that came to them is, by this sign, conquer. By this sign, conquer. Constantine was so impressed by that, he had that Christian sign put on helmets and shields, and they went into battle, and they won. And that led to the conversion, mental conversion of Constantine at that time, but it seems like before he died, he actually had a confession of faith and was baptized, and it was a genuine conversion. And we also know that, oh, it says, by that sign conquer, that Christianity was, went from being persecuted to first permitted, and then encouraged, and then eventually became the official religion of the empire. By the time you get to Justinian, Justinian said that uh, you couldn't inherit property unless you were a baptized Christian. And what the effect of that was not anticipated is that parents thought, well, you know, my young baby here, uh, I might die early. And if I die early, my property won't go to that child. So we're going to baptize our child. So it went suddenly from being adult baptism around the 6th century, 5th century, 6th century, uh, over a short period of time. Baptismals went from being adult baptismals to infant baptismals. It changed the tradition of the church because of that uh, decree. But that's how the, I digress a little bit, that's just how things changed. Let's go back to our main story. So here's the dilemma. Diocletian ordered the burning of the material. Some people capitulated with that. And now Constantine's allowing Christianity to thrive. What are they going to do with all these tradadores? Would they be restored? Could they repent with this unforgivable sin? Could they be ever allowed back into church leadership? This was a huge dilemma in the church because there were opposing views. You know, our culture is not the only one that gets polarized. This was a polarizing issue for the church at that time. So Donatus led the Donatist, and they said the traitors shouldn't ever be allowed to go back into ministry even those who were repentant. But the Catholics, now at that time, there was no Roman Catholic Church. It was just the church, the universal church. There wasn't divisions of it at that time. The Catholics or universalists, they said, wait a minute, we approve a restoration process for leadership if they're truly repentant. We'll come back to that concept of truly repentant in a bit. So the division between 
Those who favored restoration and those who favored not allowing restoration. Well, Augustine came to the rescue, as he did with so many theological debates at that time. He was a wise and godly man living on the shores of North Africa, out in the hinterland, but yet God gave him great insight. His writings are just amazing. But he brought clarity to this issue too. He argued in his writings that every Christian is a sinner in needing of repentance, whether they did this crime or not. And that holiness in the church is not found in its members or its leaders, but it's found in Christ. That caused the Donatist view to be rejected. It became heresy and the church went forward, allowing some who were truly repentant and went through a restoration process to come back into ministry. Now, that's not just an ancient problem. It's a modern problem. And unfortunately, I've encountered it too many times in my life. I won't tell you about my own falls, okay? <laughs> That's too personal. I really don't have anything that would embarrass you to tell about. But when I was a teenager, my pastor was dismissed from the church quietly. And the only reason I have some insight into it is because my father was a board member elder in the church. And I overheard conversations on the phone and other conversations where I got the gist of what had happened. Some kind of sexual sin. And they quietly dismissed him and didn't tell the congregation. And sadly, this pastor went on to do the same thing in two other churches that followed, including the molestation of a family member of mine. The sin wasn't really dealt with. He wasn't truly repentant. And the sin continued. As an adult, I went to a church in which we actually sensed something was not right in the church and because the language from the pulpit was just, look at us, we're better than everybody else kind of language. And it just was so off-putting to me. I left the church, and about two months later, I learned that the pastor had been outed for sexual sin. And a very charismatic guy had a strong following in the church. And he said, well, I've repented. God's forgiven me. My wife's forgiven me. I just go back to the pulpit. And the church leader said, no, no, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to have a process of restoration. And he refused. Well, he left and took about a third of the church body and went and started another church. And six months later, he was outed again for sexual sin. And then he went off to sell insurance somewhere. I understand that the marriage did survive and it was healing in that. Another situation. I'm not giving any names or identities. And none of these people you will know, okay? Don't try to figure it out. Well, well, I'm being cryptic enough that you won't figure it out, okay? There was, a, there was a well-known public figure who fell into sin, sexual, financial. He actually went to prison. And a friend of mine ministered to him in prison. And on the day he was released, my, that friend brought him to my office and sat him down and left him with me for about three hours. Um, it, my friend didn't know how to deal with it at that point, so he just left. So I talked to this guy, and he was the most contrite man I'd ever seen in my life. Just humble before the Lord, recognizing his sin, truly repentant heart. And uh, I thought he was going to make it. He promised God and told me that he would never be a public figure again. 
He wanted to minister, but he needed to do it in a quiet, out-of-the-way place, getting no attention to himself. That was his plan. Unfortunately, that didn't last. For long, he started gaining more and more attention and getting a public forum and television and all that. And then the outlandish things started happening again. As the scripture says, as a dog returns to its vomit. That was so sad to see that after just being such a humbled at that moment. It just didn't last. Just this year, I was asked to counsel a uh, pastor who got into a sexual situation with a parishioner in the church. And um, he was truly repentant. And he is currently in a long restoration process. And time will tell. Time will tell. So it's not easy to come in those. And I can understand why people say, well, somebody's fallen, you know, flip a coin, is it going to work or is it not going to work? That's the case. So here's some lessons I've learned from this. We all need repentance. David, not David Stevens, David King David, okay? Don't tell him I... He was an altar adulterer and a murderer, but he was repentant. God allowed him to maintain the throne, but there were consequences. You know, we might can be forgiven, and God separates our sins as far as the east is from the west, puts them in the sea of forgetfulness. That's God. In this world, there can still be consequences of sin. Maybe not in eternity, because they're forgiven, but there are consequences of sin. Certainly, David, the dissolution of his family, a civil war with his son, uh, his reputation tarnished. But God used him still. Paul, chief among sinners. Um, but historians will tell you that if you take all the writings of Paul that we know and combine them into one little pamphlet, it would be about 80 pages long maximum, depending on the font and so forth. 80 pages. I mean... Plato's dialogues all were much longer. Each one of them was much longer than that. But historians will tell you no one other than Christ had a greater impact on the history of the world than this man who was chief among sinners. God restored him. He was repentant. He had a long process. We know for 10 years he was at Tarsus as a quiet figure. He went to Arabia first and then went to Tarsus. And God was processing him and helping him come to an understanding of who he was. And then he used him to a strategic ministry after a long restoration process. Paul writes to the Romans, none is righteous, no, not one. He's quoting Psalms 14, but that's what he writes. And then a few pages later, a few verses later, he says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Can I hear amen? You don't have to, okay? But it's true. It's true. Lesson number two, leaders should be treated differently. If you read scripture, it's clear there's different standards for selecting leaders for that responsibility. There's different standards for how they need to be held accountable. I won't quote all those, but let me just tell you about one. Luke, Jesus teaching in Luke chapter 12. He says, everyone to whom much is given, to him much is required. He's talking about people in leadership and who've given responsibilities you have a lot. And you're a target. We'll look at that in just a minute. You're a target. Lesson number three. 
We need to inspect more than just the outcome of the ministry. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, in chapter, in chapter 7 of Matthew, he talks about wolves and sheep's clothing. And he says, you know, you can know someone by their fruit. Now, he's talking about false prophets here. I don't think there's a direct application to Christians who fall into sin. They're not in the same category, but some of this still will apply. But he says, diseased trees, uh, trees bear bad fruit, and healthy trees bear good fruit. But what about Christian leaders who fall into sin but have been manifesting good fruit? How do we deal with that? How do we look at that? I think John Stott comes to our rescue in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. He says there's really three things you have to look at. First is their character and their content and conduct. That's first. In fact, I think we need to apply these same criteria to those that we choose in any leadership position in the church or in government. And when you start applying to this, you'll say, well, I'm going to eliminate a lot of people right away. They might have a policy I like, but if their character is such, when they get in office, they may, may, that character may take them some totally different direction. So character and context. Secondly, you've got to look at their teaching and their preaching and see if it conforms to Scripture, if it's accurate. And third, you look at the effects of that. That's the outcome. And we have to do all three of these. All leaders must pass all three tests. Starting, first and foremost, the foundation is proper character and conduct in their lives. So how do we get about that, get to doing that? Well, we need accountability. Peter wrote in his own letter, he says, The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. How does Peter know that? He experienced that in his own life. And you know what? Jesus warned him. In Luke 22, Jesus warned Peter that Satan wanted to sift him like wheat. Jesus said, I've prayed for you that that won't happen. But it did. And he says, we then, because this happens, and we're finite and vulnerable and subject to temptation, we need to strengthen the brothers. We need to hold each other accountable in this. We all need accountability in our life, and more so, more so, more so for leaders. I've really appreciated the traditions of CMDA trying to understand this and apply this. It's one of the reasons there's glass in almost every door in this building for visual accountability. That's why they're internal controls. It's not because we're concerned about protecting money. We're concerned about protecting each other from temptations. That's why there's policy rules about being properly chaperoned when we're traveling and all that. These are accountability issues that we all need in our life, especially leadership. Paul, in writing about this to us, about accountability, will we have some responsibility for self-accountability? And he tells about that in 1 Corinthians 11, where he's talking about when we come to the Lord's table, we need to examine ourselves before we do that. He even warns, he says, some are weak and ill and some have even died because they failed to examine their life before coming to the righteousness of God. We have to examine ourselves. But then he gives another admonition. If I understand this verse correctly, I think we're dealing, the first one here is having to do 
our own examination of ourselves. The second one, when he's in the context he's writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, examine yourselves, and in the context he's saying, you need to be looking at each other's walk of faith and see if it measures up. If it's not, you need to take some action. As a corporate body, you need to take some action. We need to examine ourselves, and we need to examine one another who we're in fellowship with in our church body. 1 Corinthians 10. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Such a person was Gordon MacDonald. I can talk about him and name him because he's named himself. He was a pastor of a large church in Massachusetts, that, and he had a meteoric rise in Christianity. He went from a successful pastor to president of Denver Seminary, to president of World Vision, to president of InterVarsity, while at InterVarsity, it became known that he had an adulterous affair back in 87 while he was pastoring Grace Church. So what happened? Immediately he stepped down. Immediately he allowed a group of uh, church leaders to come around him and hold him accountable and develop a restoration process for him. He was truly repentant. And won't tell you that whole story, take too long. But he goes on to write about this as in a wonderful book, A Rebuilding Your Broken World. It's a great book for any of us who are in a fallen state and need to rebuild our lives. And he did it rightly. Under the authority of God through the church leadership. And some of you may know that he, he and three others were quietly, as quietly as possible, counseling President Clinton when he went through his scandal, his period of scandal. And McDord um, McDonald was one of the three. that He never spoke about it publicly, didn't write about it, didn't take any credit for it. But he was, his own personal experience was helpful to Bill Clinton with that similar problem. And by the way, his church back at Grace Church in Massachusetts voted him back as pastor. After, I don't know, it, it may have been two, three years uh, of recovery process, they accepted him back. So some conclusions. Good fruit can come through Christians who have secret sin. And that secret sin only lasts for a while. Eventually, you know, um, all sins, surely sin will find you out. It can't ultimately be hidden. certainly won't be hidden from God at any point in time. Fruit is not only the determinant of faith. You can see a very charismatic, and I mean that in terms of personal talent, uh, dynamic leader with a great effective ministry. There could be a problem, so they need accountability. And that effective ministry is not the measure of their own walk of faith necessarily. James 1 says that every good and perfect gift from the Father. He doesn't need talented people. He uses talented people who surrender their lives to him. I mean, he used a donkey to redirect Balaam. You know, he could cause the rocks to rise up to praise him. But he will use me, and he will use you as well. We get disappointed when someone fails, but that doesn't discount the good that God did through that person's ministry. Okay? God desires but doesn't depend on our holiness or righteousness. Nevertheless, our lives do. Our reputation, our standing, our future ministry, our relationships, certainly strong in a relationship with God, 
depends on our faithfulness and our walk of faith. Let's make it personal. Uh, so that any of you um, have any personal experience with being a Christian leader who's had a public fall from grace? Um, but the truth is we all fall from grace at times. We all need forgiveness. We all need restoration. And thank God that he's gracious. Grace is truly amazing. And I think when we get on in the other side and look back, we'll just think that grace is far more marvelous than we ever imagined it to be. That's grace. Forgiveness, though, is not optional. Complete this with me. Forgive us our trespasses as... Yeah. You know, that phrase in the Lord's Prayer is the only thing in the Lord's Prayer that he chose to explain at the end of the prayer. And Matthew 6, 14, 15 says, But if you do not forgive others your trespasses, neither will your Heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. The only thing he thought worthy of explanation to reinforce that. We need to come to the point where we understand forgiveness is a choice we have to make. I tell my grandchildren, I say, this is the only time you'll ever hear Grandpa using this word. And it's the only time I want to hear you use it. I tell them, emotions are stupid. Okay? We can't let emotions rule our life. Yes, emotions can be part of an abundant life. They can also be part of a depressing life. We don't want that to be the deciding factor in our lives. We want to know truth and we want to apply truth. I, I, I was counseling a person who was just harboring bitterness and anger and couldn't give forgiveness. And, you know, I made the old illustration about, you know, that bitterness and anger towards someone is like drinking poison and hoping they die. It doesn't work that way. It's just harming you. And God doesn't want us there. He made a willful decision to forgive us. And we have to make a willful decision to forgive others. The emotions will follow. If you're honoring God in that decision making, he will channel your emotions rightly afterwards. You have, suppose you have a garden, a walled garden. It's going to have a gate or more into it. And that gate is intended to let you get out. Hopefully it's intended to let your friends come in. Well, you have a gate in your heart, and it's a forgiveness gate. And if that gate is not letting forgiveness out, it's not letting forgiveness in. It closes to forgiveness. It's got to be a two-way street for that. Golden Rule tells us, do unto others as we'd have them do unto you. So if you want to be granted repentance and forgiveness and restoration then you have to be offering that as well. It's a decision. We don't need to be a Donatist, those who refuse to allow others restoration in their lives. Is it risky? Yeah. Is it always going to work? Maybe not. Jesus sacrificed for those who would accept salvation and those who didn't. And he accepted those who would repent and then return to their sin. He didn't make it conditional. He said to the woman who caught in adultery, go and sin no more. He, we don't know whether she did or didn't. But he offers forgiveness to all of us at all times. How about that gate in your life? Is it a prison cell door that locks in bitterness and unforgiveness and not wanting others to have restoration? 
Or is it an open door, inviting and offering forgiveness and accepting forgiveness? That's where God wants us to be in our lives. So, restoration, returning something to its former condition or function. We all started here, an old rusty heap out in the pasture, and God comes and he says, though your sins were as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. Now, I should have gotten pictures where it went from red to white, but I didn't see that. (laughs) But that's what we want in our lives, isn't it? We want that restoration, and then we need to be ambassadors and ministers of reconciliation and restoration for others. I think we all want that in our lives. We have to work at it. We have to dedicate ourselves to do that. Let's take a moment to consider where we are in that. Would you? Father, speak to our hearts. Let your Holy Spirit prompt us. If there be any wicked way in us, we pray that you'd reveal that. And then when we come asking for forgiveness, we know that you're, you give it abundantly, full of grace and mercy, because you love us. And as we receive, Father, then we want to give. If we're not doing that as we ought to, Lord, make it apparent to us and give us the strength, the courage to go forward in grace, forgiving one another as you've forgiven us. And we pray this in the name of our Savior who made it all possible, Christ Jesus. Amen.